HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Samuel Adams, Brewing the American Dream. Hear stories from their inspiring entrepreneurs on Let's Talk About Food, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, hot dog is my favorite food, and I uh, I like my hot dog with ketchup. That's it. Hot dog, ketchup, bun. That's good. I used to be a mustard and relish kind of guy, and then I thought for a while I might be I might really like Chicago style, but no, I don't think so. I, I think I think I'm a I think I'm a hot dog purist. Well, on, on a bun, and I grew up with ketchup on hot dogs. Um, as an as as an adult, I think I might go with more of the um, you know Ray Poupon, you know spicy mustards. Um, I don't add onions. I don't add chili. I like my hot dogs with uh, a spicy brown mustard and steamed uh, um, sauerkraut. With some ketchup and tomatoes, and basically that's it. I hate when people put sauerkraut and mustard. And I know Americans love their hot dogs that way, but. <laughs> That's not me. <laughs> Frankfurter, Wiener, Glizzy, Hot Dog. Whatever you call it, the styles, toppings, and combinations of this on-the-go snack are infinite and widely different. From quail eggs in Colombia, to battered and deep-fried in Korea, to radioactive green relish in Chicago, the food is a global staple and has become an American icon. These were the first words Mickey Mouse uttered in the 1929 cartoon, The Carnival Kid. In 2021, Americans spent approximately $7.1 billion on the tubed food. And since 1956, July has been earmarked in the U.S. as National Hot Dog Month. This week, we're celebrating. I'm Dylan Hoyer, and this is Meat and Three on HRN. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. Hot dogs are a summer fixture in the United States. 
It's estimated that a whopping 150 million hot dogs are consumed on July 4th alone. But have you ever wondered where they came from? Their origin story? Zoe Gruskin talks to a bona fide hot dog historian to find out. I doubt many people can recall their very first hot dog, but Bruce Craig can, in detail. Nathan's on Coney Island, right after World War II. I vividly remember it and can see myself at that hot dog stand on a hot summer day, getting a hot dog handed down to me. And just like that, he was hooked. By the time he'd become a professor of history, Bruce was living in another hot dog hotspot, Chicago. It was there that he decided to turn his academic attention to that beloved food. He wanted to know when and how hot dogs had come to be in this country. And especially what hot dogs say about American culture and American history. Cultures, because it's not just one, there are many. Bruce says the history of hot dogs goes all the way back to the Stone Age. Dating back to the Paleolithic period when meats were stuffed into guts and or animal skins for preservation. But more directly, the modern hot dog can trace its roots to one particular country. There are sausage cultures all over Europe, in fact, all over the world. But it's in Germany that it's an integral part of their culinary and general culture. How did German sausages become an American staple? In the 19th century alone, more than 5 million immigrants left Germany for the United States. And they brought with them from different regions of Germany that they came from, different styles of sausages. For example, Frankfurter-style sausages were traditionally made with pork, while Vienna-style sausages used a mix of meats, including beef, pork, and sometimes veal. In America, though, things got a little topsy-turvy. Vienna-style sausages, or wieners, you know, wieners, got porkier in the hands of German butchers like Oscar Mayer, a real person. And Franks went in another direction. Frankfurters became all beef, or mostly all beef, in the hands of Jewish immigrants. So the all-beef hot dog that we know is really an Ashkenazi Jewish dish of creation. From that point on, hot dogs have been a hybrid food, the product of cultures colliding. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves because right now we're still just talking about a plain sausage. Germans might be fine eating them on their own as a snack. But Americans love sandwiches. And a hot dog is a sandwich, by the way. I know you're going to ask me that later. <laughs> so at some point, a light white bun was added. It's not totally clear how they were introduced. There are a few different theories about where the hot dog bun was popularized. But Coney Island is an epicenter. That's right. Coney Island, Brooklyn, where Bruce had his very own first hot dog. And where the hot dog as we know it has been shaped by generations of new arrivals to the country. Hot dogs have hundreds of years of history. And as Bruce mentioned, the food moved from being pork-based to all beef as they became kosher in the hands of Jewish immigrants. This year, the global kosher food market claims worldwide sales on kosher products at over $3 billion. And a 2018 article in the Boston Globe states that more than 40% of packaged products and beverages in the United States are certified kosher. Alba Tamara Rodriguez brings us along on an investigation into the kosher hot dog. Kosher. You've heard the word. 
I grew up knowing a good amount of Yiddish, a consequence of being a New Yorker. I always understood it to mean clean, up to code, and I never really gave it a second thought. Then I found out July is National Hot Dog Month, and I realized that I make a point of only eating kosher hot dogs. Then I began to think, well, why? And what exactly is kosher? So I took the only logical step and visited a kosher meat factory in Hillside, New Jersey, to see for myself. Hi, my name is Seth Levitt, and I am the CEO of Abels and Hyman. Abels and Hyman manufactures kosher hot dogs, salamis, and other deli meats. Our top-selling item would be our hot dogs. But before I could go on the hot dog tour of my dreams... Give you a hairnet? I had to put on a full-face hairnet, a long blue coat that a butcher might wear, even though I looked more like I was entering an operating room. I had to remove my shoes, put on rubber boots, which then had to be sanitized by stepping into a liquid. I also had to sanitize my hands. Then I stepped inside the processing side of the factory. It was huge. There was a room where workers hand-packaged the hot dogs, another room for peeling them from their casing, another room with meat before and after processing. The raw side is on the other side. This is a fully cooked side. Product gets cooked, stays in here for a few hours, 12 to 24, depending on what it is. Chills down, starts making its way into the processing room. The factory operates as a well-oiled machine and keeps a very sanitary workspace. The raw product, the cooked product, and the packaged product are all kept in separate parts of the sprawling factory to ensure cleanliness and prevent cross-contamination. When people heard about my hot dog tour, they all asked the same question. How did it smell? And honestly, I didn't smell anything. It was very neutral, except for when I got into the smoking room. The smell of smoked meat wafted through the air as Seth opened the huge metal door to reveal hundreds of links hanging and glistening. The smell was warm and heavenly. Uh, kosher means a lot of things to me. Uh, in terms of, 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 of food, uh, kosher to me means clean. And when I say clean, I mean that the ingredients are clean. You, you can trust that if you're buying a kosher hot dog, you're not going to get any dairy product in there. You're not going to get any shellfish in there. Uh, you're not going to get any pork in there. Um, it means that we are adhering to a certain standard, and we will not deviate from that standard. The meat comes in kosher made. Uh, it's already been soaked and salted, which is a requirement uh, for, for kosher meat. Um, so all we do is process. We have rabbis on staff to make sure that all the ingredients that we use uh, are kosher. They check all the meat that comes in. They turn on the ovens. Uh, they inspect everything that gets delivered to us has to uh, be reviewed by them first. So they're, they're here just to inspect uh, and make sure that all of our products are kosher. But I still wanted to understand where kosher standards originated. So I went to a higher power. I spoke with Rabbi Terry Appleby, who was ordained by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in 2007. So kosher is the English way of saying kashrut, which is the Hebrew way of saying it. And the word actually means um, that something is fit. And so when we're talking about food, um, it would be food that is fit to eat. Initially at the Bible, at the Torah, the first five books of Moses, where we um, have in several different places a list of the kinds of foods that are fit to eat and foods that are not fit to eat. So for instance, 
examples of not fit to eat would be things like pork or pig products, uh, mixing milk and meat together um, is, is based in the Bible. But how do hot dog eaters and barbecuers know whether a product is kosher? So yes, we look at the source of, of the Bible. We look at the source of Jewish law, halakha. But then we also look on products, um, something called a heksher. And depends on what part of the world you live in and what part of North America you live in. There are a lot of diff different hexures, but it's a certification that um, an Orthodox rabbinic body has certified a product as being kosher. So a lot of times we see OU on a lot of products, and that's the Orthodox Union. As a lover of kosher hot dogs who had never a firm understanding of what the term really meant, I was glad to meet Frederick Kaufman, who spent some time asking similar questions. Being a secular Jew myself who does not keep kosher, I thought it was just a fascinating, strange little element of food culture, and I didn't understand it. In 2005, Kaufman did a deep dive into the multi-billion dollar industry, which culminated in his feature story, The Secret Ingredient. While on his tour of the Orthodox Union, Kaufman was met with a lot of secrecy. He found that even enzymes need to be classified kosher. The ingredients of the ingredients, as he puts it. He would ask a question, and Dr. Abraham Meyer, the Orthodox Union's senior European rabbinic field representative, would say, don't answer that. He found that the koshering process is all very mysterious and ends his article with a quote by Dr. Meyer. Kosher is a test of faith. One day we'll understand it. And Rabbi Appleby echoes these sentiments. It forces you to think about what you're eating and why and the source of, of food in our life um, to, to make it a more of a sacred activity. I set out with a simple question, but I didn't find a simple answer. Each time I asked an expert, or even took an entire tour of a kosher hot dog factory, I was left with deeper questions about why people abide by kosher diets, and why I exclusively eat kosher hot dogs, even though I personally don't keep kosher. Kaufman concludes, I thought there might have been some sort of rationality uh, behind kosher. A lot of people say it's about health, or a lot of people say it's about some sort of allegorical meaning of what is is not kosher. And then I discovered, you know, by, by pushing and pushing, I discovered that actually none of those things applied. It was simply another matter of, of, of what is stated in the book. The Torah. And the mystery of spirituality and God. And while a lot of elements remain a mystery, what I did learn is that kosher hot dogs are carefully made with an attention to the sourcing and purity of ingredients and overall cleanliness. And just that fact is enough to satisfy my curiosity and keep me munching on the kosher treat. We'll be right back with more Meat in 3 after a brief break. I'm Louisa Kasdan, host of Let's Talk About Food. I recently hosted an exciting live podcast event in Boston and interviewed incredible women entrepreneurs who have received small business coaching from the Samuel Adams Brewing the American Dream program. When I was applying to law school and I got in, I said, you know what, I'm still young, let me pivot and go into the food industry and really follow my passion. I was kind of 
scared it was a new thing to me it was like hey i don't want me in the newspaper i just want to be in my room in my house (laughs) so that was when i'm like okay now that i'm in the local newspaper i better not disappoint the people that you know that have this belief in me and on the days that you're tired or you feel defeated just keep going and 10 people might tell you no, but that doesn't mean that's your end result. You just have to keep going. Hear their stories on Let's Talk About Food, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again to Samuel Adams Brewing the American Dream for supporting this episode. HRN is home to transformative exchanges about food. We hope our diverse lineup of shows opens your eyes educates and empowers. Thanks to HRN, I ventured into the world of cooking with sumac, and I have not looked back since. I was listening to A Taste of the Past with my mom, and there was an episode about the history of American food. It inspired me to make it the subject of my final social studies project, and I ended up getting an A. Join us during our summer membership drive by donating and becoming a member. Members play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org forward slash donate to become a member today. We thank you for your support. Welcome back to Meat and Three. Just like hot dogs evolved from being pork-based to beef, diet trends have forced yet another adaptation, meatless. Now vegetarians, like HRN producer and recent New York City transplant Anna Canny, don't have to be left out of the barbecue. She sets out to try just a couple of the vegetarian hot dogs the city has to offer. My first stop is Grilled, a vegan fast food joint in Bushwick. It's really close to my apartment, and I noticed its bright green awning during my first few weeks in the city when I was walking through the nearby Maria Hernandez Park on a lively Saturday night. The sign caught my eye. It reads, Burgers, Shakes, Hot dogs, all vegan. It's also right in front of a dentist's office. I thought that was strange until I found out that it's actually owned by that dentist. Then I thought it was even stranger. For Brooklyn, the prices are really great. Making vegan food affordable and accessible is actually a part of Grilled's mission. I ordered a specialty hot dog and a vegan strawberry milkshake. There was a huge crowd gathered around the tiny kitchen window. I took my little meal wrapped in a green and white checkered wrapper, and I found a bench in the park to eat it. And, like a weirdo, I set up my recorder for a live taste test. First thing I'm noticing is that there's a lot of crushed chips on the top, potato chips. Um, but I kind of like that uh, because I'm like one of the people who puts potato chips on PB&Js and stuff. So, I like that. Uh, Hot dog looks pretty good, pretty pretty good size, pretty standard bun. And there's also some raw onions on top, like diced raw onions, white onions. All of Grilled's food is Latin American inspired. I picked the Colombian dog, which is supposed to be an homage to the head chef's home country. I took a bite. It was really good. Really, really good. Um, something sweet coming through, and it looks like it's little pieces of pineapple, which is really yummy. 
and there's some mayonnaise and some mustard and some ketchup, so all the condiments basically, with, you know, the added condiment of the chips. It's really good. I finished it off as the sun went down in the park. The milkshake was pretty delicious too. My rate, 8 out of 10. Seems like I found myself a reliable spot for a casual vegan meal. But honestly, hot dogs are one of those foods I tend to start craving after a night out. So after a bit of dancing in a local club, my friend Annie and I headed to Abe's Pagoda Bar to replenish our energy. It's sort of a combo of an Asian tiki bar and a dive bar, with big, comfy booths, soft neon lighting, and floating red Chinese lanterns. The kitchen here is open late, and the menu is packed with drunk food inspired by Southeast Asian cuisine. Annie had heard about their Mapu veggie dog, and we were really excited to try it. Like Grilled's Colombian dog, this dog was piled high with toppings. It looks like a mess, um, but it also looks really good. There are a bunch of little flakes on it, a couple different sauces. What are the flakes? Oh, the flakes were fried shallots on a bed of meaty marinated mushrooms, spicy brown mustard, and pickled hot peppers. It's definitely piled high. Like, yeah, there's a lot going on. It didn't skim at all. <laughs> And regarding the actual hot dog itself, they also did not skip. Okay, you know how like when you go to Nathan's, it's like the skinniest, like kind of shrimpy little dog. It's like that's not what's happening here. Yeah. The topping evoked the popular Sichuan dish, mapu tofu, which usually contains meat. This dog substituted mushrooms, which were drenched in the same characteristic oily red sauce made from chili oil and bean paste. It's really hot. Yeah. The dog was served piping hot. So exercise caution if you order one. I like that you're eating with a fork. It's breaking my fork. Wait, I'm just scared because it's hot. The veggie dog was a little bit crispy on the ends, and it lacked the snap of a traditional hot dog. It was hard to get a bite without pulling it out of the bun entirely. But the flavor? What do you think? It's juicy. And the topping kind of fruity. Fruity yeah. than I expected. Each bite was a bit of a challenge with the toppings falling off. Forks are definitely required. But the mushrooms were perfectly spicy, the kind of spice that sits in the front of your mouth. For a dive bar, this is the best food I've had in Brooklyn so far. And the vegan hot dog was delicious and juicy. With the toppings, you can't really tell that it's not real meat. As for most drunk food, my rating on this one is a little bit biased. But if you're a hot dog enthusiast and a brand new New Yorker like me, the Mapu Dog is 10 out of 10. The perfect midnight snack. As much as people love eating hot dogs of all kinds, someone also has to sell them. In the end, it's a living. To continue our hot dog adventure, reporter Ann Sherrick explains the business behind this cylindrical treat and the nuances that separate a successful or unsuccessful establishment. Don't ask how the sausage gets made. Well, John Crothers has boldly ignored this axiom. John is a communications manager at Revolution Brewing in Chicago. He is also an author, cook, and alum of Hot Dog University. Yes, you heard that right, Hot Dog University. It's a program run by Vienna Beef that teaches its students the ins and outs of starting a hot dog business. For John, his journey began feeling stuck in his journalism job. He shot off a late-night email inquiring about the program at HGU. He woke up to a voicemail from none other than hot dog professor Mark Reitman. The message said, Hey, John, this is Mark Reitman, and he's got an even more Chicago accent than I do, and he goes, 
And yes, I can make your hot dog dreams come true. And that was the start. And it's been just pure magic since. As for the curriculum at HGU, you're learning a bit of everything to make your business venture a success. You know, the first thing is you're really getting kind of hands-on with hot dogs, how they're made, how they're sold, uh, the efficiencies and logistics of running a business. Moving past just the construction of the dogs themselves, it's the sort of details like, you know, where are you going to sell? How many people are going to be there? Um, What sort of processes do I have to load in and load out? Or if you're doing a stand, you know, what kind of foot traffic can I expect? What kind of cost per square foot? Is it going to take me? What's my food cost? For a product stereotypically seen as made of leftovers, John found that the success behind the hot dog production at Vienna Beef was mainly attributed to the quality of ingredients and attention put into the dogs. It's a factory-made product, but like a really well-made, well-balanced flavor that is produced in a way that is not necessarily the easiest way to do it. Um, you're making natural casing dogs, that's additional labor cost. You're using great meat and butchering it yourself, that's additional labor cost. But it's worth it because you can tell the difference between you know, a really nice hot dog stand hot dog and kind of a sad thing that you eat over the sink and say, what am I doing with my life? Okay, so let's say I'm ready. I just graduated from HDU and I want to start selling my quality dogs. John lets me know what's next on my agenda for hot dog success. The first thing you do is look for someone who has a hot dog stand that you'd like to run and try to buy it. Turnkey operations are obviously the easiest way to go, and then you can kind of improve it from there. Are there any barriers to entry besides the initial startup cost, you might ask? The answer from this hot dog connoisseur was a resounding no. I think more than maybe some other restaurant projects, like hot dog stands have a lower bar to entry in that you can just like them. Or you can be grumpy about not having that hot dog stand you grew up with and decide that with your retirement or with your windfall, this is what you're going to do. Well, scratch that. There's one regulation to consider. What they want is to make sure you're not dumping the hot dog water in the sewer, and that's about it. Uh, You get maybe a church kitchen or a pantry or a restaurant friend with a grease trap and say, hey, I would love to dump my hot dog water here. And I call it, you know, uh, beef consomme, and that really makes it sound elegant and refined. With enough hard work, a successful hot dog career is attainable. But feeding hungry tourists on a hot summer day in Times Square isn't for the weak. But there's a love that keeps people coming back. The lore of a classic hot dog. It's so cool to me that while we have this insane wealth of options and diversity, hot dog stands, they haven't changed so much as they've stuck around as this piece of kind of permanent nostalgia. Like, even if you grew up with a vegan mother like I did, or... Um, you know, you grew up when you could have just amazing bami sandwiches or soup dumplings or um, flyudas. Uh, you still will stop for a hot dog and fries because it's perfect. Now, hungry and a bit teary-eyed, I plan my lunch for the day. Perhaps I'll boil a few dozen hot dogs, and if all goes according to plan, they will fill not only my stomach, but also my soul. No matter what your situation, whether you're an omnivore, a vegetarian, or adhere to a religious standard, or even a moral one, there is a hot dog for everyone to enjoy. And if you don't eat them, you can sell them. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Elba Tamara Rodriguez, Zoe Gruskin, Anna Canny, and Anne Sherrick. Beat in 3 is produced by Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Dylan Hoyer. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, in partnership with the City Council. 
Meet in 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet in 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org or follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out.